calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. November 16th, Autopsy. Implantation plus seven days. Roomcorf sighed as he looked down at the fetal ancestor curled up on the dissection tray. The fetus had torn the amniotic sac in order to get at the tiny camera, spilling the life-supporting fluid contained inside. It had died shortly afterward. They would avoid fiber-optic work now, stick to the 3D ultrasound for fear of a repeat performance. Additional ultrasounds on the herd had shown that each cow had only one fetus. All second and third fetuses were gone. Looking at the cat-sized corpse on the autopsy tray in front of him, he had trouble grasping that it wasn't even a week old. Mammalian development didn't happen like that. The word impossible flashed through his mind every few seconds, yet the facts lay on the tray before him. His gloved hand set the little corpse on a scale. Twenty-one pounds. In just six days. But why should he be surprised? From the earliest planning stages, they'd sought rapid growth. That was how he'd found Jeanne in the first place. He'd read her published research and realized she could theoretically create an artificial genome, then experiment digitally until they could alter normal growth rates. It was on reading Jeanne's second or third paper, he wasn't sure which, that the whole Ancestor project came to him in a flash of brilliance. His work on the Quagga cloning project breakthroughs in computing power, advances in oligomachines. The parts clicked, and he knew his destiny. The pieces existed, the required technology just a bit beyond what was already available off the shelf. All it really took, of course, was enough money. Venter had funded the quagga cloning, but the man wouldn't touch the Ancestor Project. He had even called the idea ludicrous. So Klaus had secured a meeting with Dante Paglione, CEO, of Janata Inc. Dante jumped on the project. He saw the real possibility of Klaus's vision. Dante obtained Gian, and the project was born. Erica Hole's leading-edge expertise in large mammal cloning was the perfect parallel to Gian's theoretical work, so Dante hired her as well. And now, after several abandoned lines of experimentation, after five long years, Klaus's vision was a reality. Tim Feely came up the ladder to the second deck. 
He looked sweaty, hairy. His nose looked a little red. What did you find, bro? Such a loser. Oh, how Klaus longed to have Erica back, just to see her face again. I'm still working on it, Mr. Feely, and stop calling me bro. Tim poked the dead fetus, then quickly pulled his finger back. Dude, this is pretty fucked up right here. You have such an eloquent way with words. Funny, Tim said. Your mom told me the same thing. I'd prefer it if you didn't reference my mother. And I'd prefer box seats at a Pistons game, followed by a Texas reach-around, but I'm not going to get either. Klaus paused, thought of asking what a Texas reach-around was, then shook his head and let it go. Goddamn spooky, Tim said. The physiology looks so familiar, almost first-trimester human if you factor in the large size. Tim was right. It did look a little like a human fetus. Klaus cut out the heart. It was already well-developed and looked very human. So much, in fact, the two might be indistinguishable. Transplanting it into a human would prove exceedingly easy. The ancestors' limbs were already forming into their final shape. Somewhat disturbing were the tiny, needle-like claws at the end of each finger. Claws like a cat's, not hooves like a cow's. Had John coded for that? Maybe it was part of her broad integument swap. As long as the organs were right, the feet didn't really matter. The size of the head and brain case also surprised Klaus. Obviously, Jean had used a great deal of genetic information from higher mammals. But it was far too early to tell if the current body proportions would remain through birth and into adulthood. Hey, bro, Tim said. You want to hear something really scary? Klaus sighed. Just say it, Mr. Feely. I did some calculations. I'm estimating the fetuses have a 50% food conversion rate. Klaus stopped and looked at the younger man. 50%? Tim nodded. Based on the amount of food the mothers have ingested, minus their baseline metabolic rate, and factoring in the fetal weight. Klaus looked at his subject in a new light. 50% of everything the ancestor took in was converted to muscle or bone or other tissues, vastly higher than any other mammal. That's significant, but that's not the scary part, Tim said. What makes my nutsack shrivel up and head for higher ground is Jan's weight projections. According to her tables, a six-day-old fetus should weigh five pounds, not 20. Klaus looked up. He'd known the numbers but hadn't stopped to realize that the fetus on the table was more than four times the size Jean had coded for. Shorting her meds had produced the needed breakthrough, but Klaus found himself wondering what details she might have missed in her creative state. What things might she have failed to document? Or possibly, were there things she didn't even know she'd done? But none of that mattered. The bottom line was they had living animals gestating inside the surrogate hosts. From here on out, All they had to do was study the growth patterns and adjust the genome accordingly. Success was a given. The only variable was time. Klaus continued the autopsy, slicing open the stomach. The contents spilled onto the dissection tray. Neither man said a word. The mystery of the missing embryos lay on the wax tray in front of them. 
Ruhmkorff stared at the tiny, half-digested bones. He could clearly make out bits of a skull. The ancestors were eating each other inside the womb. November 16th, The Russian Report Implantation plus seven days Paul Fisher stared at the sealed envelope on his desk. He was almost afraid to open it. If it didn't contain information that would help him, he had few options left. Other than the contents of the envelope, his only real lead had been uncovered by Interpol. The agency had discovered a shoestring connection between Janata and a UK company called FN Wallace Inc., that had purchased parts from a scrapped C5 galaxy. That discovery made the pieces fall into place for Paul. A plane that large could move the entire Ruhmkorff experiment anywhere in the world. But knowing Janata had a C5 only helped if the plane was out in the open, or if it flew again. Paul knew Colding would make sure neither of those things happened. No, Paul's best chance now was to find Galina Poroskova. And that was why he was scared to open the report that sat in front of him. It could be the key to Poroskova's whereabouts. An actual Russian lieutenant, escorted by two MPs, had hand-delivered it just minutes earlier. The Russian had actually asked for Paul's ID and carefully examined it before asking Paul to sign for the report. Galena's involvement could be enough to convince Switzerland, the Caymans, and China to freeze Janata's assets. If Paul couldn't make that happen there was no way to flush out colding. Paul couldn't put it off any longer. He opened the sealed envelope, finding two manila folders inside, one thick, one thin. The thick one was on top, so he started with that. It contained page after page of financial records, records that seemed to confirm Galena had been living a lavish lifestyle all across Russia and Eastern Europe. After the financial records, though, came something far more interesting. It seemed that when Russian investigators followed up on the plane tickets and hotel stays purchased in Galena's name, they discovered that more often than not, no one showed up. At times, a tall blonde did purchase big-ticket items like art and jewelry, but Galena was a five-foot-four brunette. Bottom line? Galena hadn't been seen in Russia or anywhere else since shortly after her meeting with Paul two years ago. Which meant the second report could contain only one thing. Paul opened it. If the words on the four pages chilled him, the photos damn near froze him cold. He picked up his phone and hit the extension for his assistant. Yes, sir? Get me Longworth, please, immediately. Yes, sir. Paul hung up and waited for the callback. The second report changed everything. As gruesome as it was, it provided the leverage he desperately needed. If the C-5 lead panned out, he could combine it with this and make his case for freezing Janata's accounts worldwide. But that would take time. And with Janata's mole inside the U.S. governmental system, Dante might still stay one step ahead. Unless Paul found a way to make sure the mole couldn't find anything at all. He looked at the Russian report. Not at the contents, but at the report itself at the folder. Paper. A courier. That's what he needed, not emails, databases, and phone calls. Nothing electronic. 
The phone rang. This is Colonel Fisher. What do you have for me, Paul? Longworth said. Did you find them yet? I have an interesting lead. If you approve, I'd like to try something different. We have to catch them off guard if we're going to gain the momentum. Go on the attack. I like the sound of that, Longworth said. What do you have in mind? I'd rather not say at the moment, sir. I'll have a courier deliver you a memo. A courier? Just email me. No, Paul said. I can't. Longworth paused for a second. I see. Good, Colonel. Send your memo. And while you're at it, send memos to anyone else you need help from. I'll make a call and ensure you have as many couriers as you need. Thank you, sir. Paul hung up and did some mental math. To do this right would take three days, maybe four. If it went well, he'd soon be making another visit to a Janata facility. And this time, he'd find much more than an empty building. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. November 17th, a walk on the beach. Implantation, plus eight days. Colding and Sarah walked along Rappelge Bay. Snow, stones, and sand crunched under their feet. The bay's two tongues of land on either side made for a mile-long, water-filled U that pointed northeast toward the unending expanse of Lake Superior. Stars sparkled like diamond ships on a blanket of black velvet. He had to get some personal time, even if it was only an hour or so. 
Jeanne had recovered from her panic attack. Not all the way, but some. She was still twitchy, eyes always darting to corners. She was hallucinating again, even though she denied it. Colding had told Roomcorf to up her meds a little bit more. Rappelgee Bay was ten miles away from the mansion, from the hangar, from the lab. Sarah had borrowed Clayton's crazy BV-206, the Nuge, so they could get away from everyone for a little bit. It was all getting to be too much. The fetus biting the camera, Jean going off the deep end, Dante's evasiveness, Fisher out there, hunting for them. But it was all worth it, wasn't it? Saving millions of lives, sparing people the pain his wife had gone through. Didn't that end justify the means? A week ago, he would have said yes. He wasn't so sure anymore. A stiff wind blew from the northeast, rippling the nylon of his black auto lodge parka. He was ice cold. Sarah seemed perfectly comfortable in only jeans, a sweatshirt, and a windbreaker. You must be part penguin, Colding said. I know you were born around these parts and all, but it's freezing out here. Technically, 32 degrees is freezing. It's at least 45 out here. Like spring, really. Colding smiled and shook his head, wondering how she might handle a sweltering summer day in Atlanta. Besides, Sarah said, you better soak up this heat wave while you can. On an island like this, you can bet it's below freezing every day from December to February. Colding shuddered at the thought. That's horrifying. I had enough of that on Baffin Island. Oh, come on, Peach. This place is beautiful. This is where the jet set from the 50s came to relax, and you're being paid to be here. Do you know what a resort like this would cost you a night? We're in the middle of nowhere. I wouldn't pay a dime. Sarah rolled her eyes. That's you, Peach, last of the tightwad romantics. Colding stopped and looked at Sarah. Her short blonde hair flopped in the stiff breeze. She had a beauty he'd never seen in another woman, including, he realized, in Clarissa. Even when Sarah squinted her eyelids against the stiff wind, he found himself admiring her laugh lines. She turned and met his eyes, then smiled. I've decided to forgive you for being a rotten douchebag. Good news for me. Uh-huh. But you still owe me. I do? Yeah. Big time. I see. And how can I ever make this up to you? She grinned. There's a heater in the nuge. Wouldn't it be fun to know that you put Clayton's pet vehicle to other uses? He felt a tingly rush in his chest, a vibration that reached into his fingers and toes. In the nuge? Uh, he said. She took his hand and led him back to the zebra-striped vehicle. November 18th, running out of time. Implantation plus nine days. P.J. Colding knew he'd said something very, very wrong. He just didn't know what it was. Dante stared out from the secure terminal screen, his eyes narrow slits of barely controlled fury. I can't believe you could be this stupid! But I don't understand. All he'd done was give Roomcourse latest update. Things are going better than we ever expected. The autopsies show incredible, healthy growth. Dante shook his head the way you might when you hear someone say something so incredibly stupid it barely merits a response. You're a smart man. 
or at least I thought you were. See if you can guess which word in your sentence pissed me off. Colding's mind raced for an answer. I... I still don't understand. Autopsies! Dante shouted. He banged his fist on the desk to punctuate each syllable. Ah, fuck, king, top, seas! But, sir, after the first fetus attacked the fiber optic camera, the mother spontaneously aborted, I know. Of course you're doing an autopsy on that fetus, you idiot. But how many more did you murder? Murder? Used in association with a lab animal. Two, Colding said. They're growing so fast, Klaus wants to properly document their development. I don't need documentation! A thin line of spit dangled from Dante's lower lip. I need living animals. What is there about the phrase, we're running out of time, that you don't understand? Dante, autopsies are vital to the long-term success of the project. The purpose of these animals is to collect human-compatible organs. If the animals are born and the organs have some congenital defect, Jean will need all the data she can get to figure out where that defect occurred in the growth phase. What if there are problems later on? What if there is no later on? Dante stood up and leaned forward. His face filled the screen. Colding couldn't help but think of the fetal ancestor snapping at the fiber optic camera. We can't risk any of them, Dante said. We need at least one live animal to gain the support of the world and to get Fisher to back the fuck off. Dante blinked a few times, then again sat in his chair. The back of his right hand wiped across his mouth, clearing away the string of spittle. So much for Fisher supposedly not having a clue. Either Dante hadn't been honest before, or something had changed. Dante, let me talk to Fisher. I know him. I can tell him how close we are. Get him to ease up. Absolutely not. I'm not taking any chance he can find the project. But, sir, we... No, he cannot find Black Manitou. Fisher knows about Hole. Just take care of the project and let me handle the rest of it. Let me make this perfectly clear. Dante leaned into the screen, violet eyes crazy wide. No more autopsies. You do not kill a single fetus for any reason. Do you understand? Colding nodded. Dante broke the connection without another word. The Janata logo spun slowly on the screen. Colding thought about Dante's reaction. The man was normally so composed, but he'd lost it lost it bad, and maybe said some things he hadn't wanted to say. Fisher knows about Hole. Of course Fisher knew about Hole. She had been his operative, unless... unless Fisher knew Hole was dead. And if she was, there was only one person who had the opportunity to kill her before Fisher could have taken her to safety. Magnus Paglione. But that was just a theory, and a far-fetched one at that. Thank God Magnus was far away at the Manitoba headquarters. As long as Magnus stayed there, everything would work out just fine. November 19th, Molly McButter. Implantation plus 10 days. In the C5 cockpit, Sarah Pernam whistled the tune to Cat Scratch Fever as she walked through the maintenance checklist on her clipboard. She and Alonzo were doing the weekly walkthrough of all cockpit systems. A couple of things needed work. 
but Big Fred was in solid shape. Even on a military base with full crews, C-5s were maintenance nightmares. Out here, making sure she was ready to go on a moment's notice was a full-time job. Zoe, you go through the comms check yet? Alonzo nodded. Yes, genius, it was fine. Just like I told you when you asked me five minutes ago. Ah, that was right. She had asked him. Alonzo set his clipboard in his lap and looked at her. If I didn't know you better, I'd swear someone fucked you stupid. She whipped out her clipboard and bopped him on top of the head. He flinched and laughed, rubbing the spot she'd hit. Ouch, I noticed you didn't deny it. She shrugged. He'd already figured it out. No point in lying to him. Sarah, what happened to, no way I'm hitting that again? So I was wrong, so sue me. He fiddled with his clipboard. It's just, well, no one cares if you're getting some nookie, but we all saw how messed up you were the last time you and Colding danced. Well, it's different now. It was different, but Alonzo's concern made her see it through his eyes. She had hated Colding. Now, she wondered if the opposite was happening, and after only a few days. Just use your head, Alonzo said. I mean, you know, use it for thinking. She rolled her eyes. Okay, I think I'm done with your verbal diarrhea. I'm going to check the systems in the barn. You stay here and think about the things you've said, young man, and you feel shame. She stood and turned. He held up his hand and smiled. She gave him the high five he wanted. Alonzo supported her, but his concern made sense. Made sense to her brain, sure, but not to her heart. You are in so much trouble, girl. You're falling hard and you know it. She couldn't help it. To think the reason he never contacted her was that he still grieved for his dead wife. Heart-wrenching and just so tragically romantic, she could barely stand it. Sarah wandered down to the first deck, where Jean, Rumkorf, and Tim were working on the cows. Good morning, Jean said with a welcome smile. She was standing inside stall 25, working on cow, well, cow 25. The woman's silky black hair looked patchy, rumpled. Colding had talked about the fetus incident, the hair pulling, Jean's breakdown. Morning, Jean. How are you? Jean waved a hand dismissively. I'm fine, the gesture said. Then she returned to her work. Sarah moved across the aisle to scratch the nose of a cow with an ear tag that read A34. It was a big cow. Hell, they were all big. Sarah stood five foot ten, and if the cows had their heads up, they could look her right in the eye. 34 had an all-white head, save for a black eye patch on the right side. She reminded Sarah of that dog, Petey, from the old Little Rascals movies. She scratched the big, bony part of its nose. The cow's eyes narrowed in pleasure. It pushed into her hand, its neck so strong and head so big it made Sarah stumble backward. Hey, take it easy, old girl, Sarah said with a laugh. Don't go getting greedy on me now. Tim looked up from his current patient. Do you fucking mind? We're trying to work here. Sarah felt like she'd been slapped. She just wanted to say hello. Before she could respond, Jean shuffled out of stall 25 and scowled at Tim. Sarah can go anywhere she wants, Jean said in a cold tone. You just keep your mouth shut or I will shut it for you. Tim blinked slowly. If Sarah hadn't known better, she would have sworn Feely was drunk. Well, Tim said, look who had her cocoa puffs this morning. 
John's eyes narrowed. What does that mean? It means you're cuckoo, Tim said. I'll translate into English for you. You're fucking crazy. Feely, Roomkorf snapped. That will be quite enough of that. Back off, Tim said. I've had about enough of your little Nazi mouth. Roomkorf paused, opened his mouth to speak, closed it, then opened it again. Are you threatening me? This physical violence? Tim shook his head. No, I said I've had about enough of your Nazi mouth. That is a statement of preference. But I also want to put my foot so far up your ass you can smell my toes. That, to be clear, is a threat of physical violence. Roomkorf blinked. Tim stared. Jean and Sarah looked back and forth between them. Sarah had to do something to get rid of this tension. Jean, give me some paper, Sarah said. Jean paused for a second, then did as she was asked. Sarah grabbed a black permanent marker and wrote something down on the paper. Jean read it, then covered her mouth with her hand to try and hide a giggle. She grabbed a roll of scotch tape, pulled out a strip, and taped the paper to the stall. Written on it in neat, black, block letters were the words Molly McButter. They need names, Sarah said. What kind of a name is 34? From now on, this one is Molly McButter. Roomcourt started to protest, but Jean grabbed the marker and another sheet of paper. With almost childlike glee, she wrote down a name and taped it to cage 43. That cage held a cow with an all-white head, the only all-white head in the herd, who is now apparently named Betty. Roomcorf sighed, then shrugged. All right, I suppose this is harmless. It's retarded, Tim said. That's what it is. Sarah gave him a pleading look. He stared back, then rolled his eyes a little. Retarded, that is, unless you name one Sir Moosalot. Then we're all good in the hood. Jean grabbed another piece of paper. How you spell Moosalot? Sarah smiled and winked at Tim. He smiled back, then told Jean how to spell it. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.